For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of worth. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Sunday, everyone, and welcome to Richard Skipper Celebrates. Happy Father's Day uh, to all of our fathers, and welcome to our show. I am so excited about tonight's show uh, because in addition to celebrating Judy Garland, I am celebrating someone that I've come to admire so much, and that's Randy Schmidt. Uh, he was here uh, about a year ago uh, when we were celebrating Karen Carpenter. Uh, he wrote an incredible book called Little Girl Blue. And tonight we are going to be celebrating Judy Garland in her own words uh, through uh, interviews, uh, through recordings, through her own encounters. Uh, this is a fascinating book. And not only are we going to be celebrating this book tonight and Randy, but we are also going to be giving away a very special copy of this book tonight, and it will be personally autographed to one of our very special viewers tonight. So all you need to do is comment tonight with hashtag unity, because we're all in this together, as we will be talking about tonight. And we're going to be talking about fathers and how Judy Garland's father, he passed away at the very early age of 49 just as Judy's career was on the rise and how this affected her life and her career and her trajectory. There's so much to cover tonight, but let's start as we always do by hearing from the lady herself, Judy Garland. Dear, when she you smiled at me, I heard a melody. It haunted me from the start. <laughs> Side of me started a symphony, sing went the strings of my heart. Was like a breath of spring, I heard a robin sing about a nest set apart. All nature seemed to be in perfect harmony. Of my heart. Your eyes made sky seem blue again. What else could I do again but keep repeating? Through and through, I love you, love. I still recall the thrill. I guess I always will. I hope we'll never depart. Your lips to mine, oh, brassity divine. Sing when the strings of my
made skies seem blue again. What else could I do again but keep repeating through and through I love you, love you. I still recall a thrill. I guess I always will. I hope we'll never depart. Dear, with your lips to mine, oh, perhaps a deed of Hello, Randy, and welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. That was such a beautiful tribute. Wow. Thank you so much. My friend Jared put that together, Jared Morley. So uh, kudos to him for putting that together. Um, Before we start, um, I have a bone to pick with you. So Uh I hope you don't mind. At the beginning of your book, you said that your trajectory, your your introduction to Judy uh, began in 1979, around that time, uh, shortly after you turned four years old. Am I correct? That's correct. Remembering that correctly? Mm -hmm. I moved to New York in 1979 at the age of 18. That's the bone to pick. (laughs) As I was reading that, it's a good thing I wasn't drinking. I would have done a perfect spit take. Well, you're aging beautifully, and I can't say the same thing about me right now. No, you look absolutely wonderful. But my, you know, it's interesting. uh, This whole month, as you know, I've been celebrating, Judy. So it means so much to me that you said yes to being here this week. You have been so busy. So getting you here this week. And this week, as much as we're celebrating her, is also a bittersweet week because this week also marks the anniversary of her passing. And of course, we're celebrating 100 years. I was eight years old when Judy Garland passed away. Uh, And I remember that day so vividly. Um, And I even talk about this in my show, True Story, and those who watch the show know this story. I threw myself on the floor screaming, I can't go on, I can't go on. And my mother grabbing me saying, you don't even know this woman. Why are you reacting this way? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how everyone, and this is why I chose the word unity tonight, because there's something about Judy that connects so many people right. as over the past month there have been so many almost daily i am discovering judy groups and judy um sightings and judy uh listings on twitter and social media and everywhere what do you think it is that it's all i know what it is for me but you being in the throes of this, writing this book and everything, that it's still resonating so strongly. Uh, there have been other artists that have come and gone, but this outpouring on the level that Judy Garland is getting right now. You know, I think we've had big talents over the years, but I don't think anything quite encapsulates the energy and the talent and the 
feistiness and the vulnerability, like the extremes of Judy Garland. And I think that's what makes her so important to so many people and is undeniably what keeps introducing her to more generations because she's such a, a mix of contrasts. And that's what I think is so beautiful about her because one minute she's this, you know, forced to be reckoned with powerhouse. And the next she can be this frail little gentle um, person that you want to take care of. And I don't know, I, I was drawn to her, like I said, from the time I was four, um, I knew her first, of course, as Dorothy, like a lot of people. And it took several years for me to realize, because when you see a movie when you're four years old, you believe that's real life or that's a real person or whatever. That character is very real and you don't understand, oh, it's a movie star acting necessarily. <laughs> and so I think it was by the time I was six or maybe seven that I realized and was able to find out enough about her that, you know, this was a real little girl who became a, a young woman and who had um, children and a fam and family and went on to make, you know, 30 some odd other movies and um, this huge concert career. And so to then discover there was so much more than just Dorothy was, um, was what I think kept pulling me in. I, there was, you know, another part of her, as soon as I discovered something else and you know, got comfortable with that part of Judy, there was another part of her or another facet that um, was still left to explore. Now I start my shows with a surprise question and I have this surprise question here. Uh, there's a, a, a moth flying around. It's going to, I'm reminded of that story. <laughs> the story of, where she lodged it in yes, her throat. Where she lodged it in her throat. It's going to happen here too. I think that may be Judy flying around here. <laughs> um, I just had my do, uh, back door open. So they, the surprise question is, um, What's the last, it's a strange question uh, if, from this box here. What's the last product that you returned? I'm not going to ask that question. I'm going to ask, what was the last Judy item that you purchased? Oh, wow. Um, the last Judy item I purchased. Actually, um, it was last week. I was in LA for the 100th birthday celebration that was going on at Wilshire Ebell Theater. And that afternoon, I went for the first time to visit the Academy Museum and got to see the ruby slippers there. And um, it was just a fantastic day. But I bought a, um, a little ruby slipper lapel pin that I wore that night then um, with my tux to the, to the event. So that was my finishing touch and my, my little bit of a pop of color on a a black and gray tux. And those are great pictures. I, I mean, what was the highlight of that trip for you going up there? And by the way, Scott Headley, who put that mm -hmm. entire exhibit together, is on the show tomorrow night. So everyone, if you're available, please tune in tomorrow night. Oh, uh, so <laughs> uh, what was the highlight for you for the trip? You know, I think it was just being in the moment of that event because it was everything, you know, sights, sounds, smells, everything, Judy, all around. And it was almost overwhelming at times in a really wonderful way because it was so excessive and <laughs> and over the top and glamorous. And, um, you know, just to be surrounded by hundreds, maybe thousands of Judy Garland roses 
And um, then there was, there was a fashion show with gowns inspired by Judy's looks in different movies. Wow. And then to see um, Lorna and Joe with, with all of Lorna's children and grandchildren blowing out the candles in the 100th cake. And there was a launch of the, the fragrance, the new fragrance um, that was inspired by Judy. And just all of these things going on at once. I think just being in that surrounding and you know seeing her image projected up on the walls of the Wilshire Ebel and hearing her voice ring out through the echoes of Hollywood. And it was, it was pretty incredible and searchlights, you know, I mean, it was, it was a full on glamorous holiday experience and something. It was everything that you expected it to be. It it was more because I really didn't know what to expect. There wasn't a lot of information as to what the evening would, would hold. So um, there were several of us outside going, what are we going to do here for three hours? You know, what's, what's the plan? Has anybody heard the program or seen the, uh, the agenda or anything? And it was um, just really, really special. And, you know, Scott being on the program tomorrow night, will be able to give much more of, you know, the behind the scenes of that, but um, wow, his, his exhibit and seeing those gowns and, and the, the posters and everything, it, it was just really a fascinating experience. And to see, her family walking around and getting to, you know, see grandma's things. I mean, I know it sounds silly, but seeing the sign on the table that said reserved for Garland family was kind of special. I am going to be sharing a very interesting photograph this uh, tomorrow night with her great grandson uh, wearing Margaret Hamilton's hat from the Wizard of Oz uh, and other family pictures that I have been given uh, access to mm-hmm. that we're going to share tomorrow night. Uh, but I, I want to ask, we're going to get to your book in just a moment, but I asked um, for your favorite photo of Judy, excluding the one that's on the cover of your book. Uh, and you shared this photo, uh, which I love as well. Why this particular photograph of Judy Garland? And before you answer, I just want to say something. There's no denying the beauty of this photograph. And it almost breaks my heart to look at this photograph because Judy never saw herself as beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's part of what this photo speaks to is how undeniably glamorous and beautiful that she was. And like you said, she didn't really realize it. She looked at people like Lana Turner and Hedy Lamar and, and thought that's what glamour is and didn't see it in herself. And I think this was, this particular photograph was one that, um, I mean, it's just undeniable. And it was one of the, the first photos of Judy that I purchased as a kid. Um, outside of anything Wizard of Oz. We used to have this um, art in the park in my little hometown of Cordell, Oklahoma. (laughs) And so to have anything Judy or Oz related in my hometown that I didn't import there myself (laughs) was pretty exciting. And there was this, there was this guy who had all of these beautiful sepia tone photographs that were, you know, framed and you could purchase them for like 10 bucks or something like that. And, um, I remember one year I, I purchased a picture of Dorothy Scarecrow and Tin Man all together. And I still have that actually in my office at school where I teach. And um, the next year he was back with this exhibit. And I remember just flipping through all of these and looking, planning, you know, get another Wizard of Oz picture or whatever. 
And that just stopped me dead in my tracks. It was like, wow. Like I knew it was Judy, but it was such a different Judy than I was used to. And so I, I knew I had just enough money for one. So I had to forego the, the additional Oz pictures for something that was just so striking. Now, again, I chose this word unity. I'd like you to talk about that, what that word means to you and what you've experienced as this writer who has brought Judy's words together, the closest to her autobiography that we will ever have. Uh, and what you feel from the Garland community, uh, good, bad, indifferent, uh, and uh, what that means to you. Well, I think back you know, to that kid that bought the picture of, of Judy at the art festival in rural Oklahoma and feeling so secluded in my interests and in my passions and you know, very oftentimes made to feel that I should either be ashamed of that or that it was unusual or different and not in a good way. Um, you know, luckily, I think we celebrate the the weird things a lot more now in, in young people than maybe we did even, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And, you know, I just think of what it was like then to find other people like me and to know that I wasn't alone. That I think that's the unity definitely comes into. That's what I think of is just finding a community of others who got it. You know, um, I kind of felt a little bit like Dorothy in Kansas. I knew there was more out there. I knew there was more color and more, um, you know, excitement that you might not find in a little farming community in Oklahoma. And it was in a lot of ways, Judy and Oz that kind of gave me the first hints that there was more out there and that there were other people like me. You know, I had pen pals in the International Wizard of Oz Club when I was nine, 10, 11 years old and people that it's kind of cool. I've got to reunite with some of them, you know, in social media these past few years. And um, that was kind of my only outlet for a long time. But that started to build that community and unity that I think we experience as part of this um, this Garland experience that we have. And, um, you know, there are all types of Garland fans. You get all kinds of drama sometimes from people, people who don't like what you do. Um, I saw somebody say something the other day to the effect that I was a, a serial author. <laughs> and it sounded very much like I was a, a serial killer or something. But um, you know, you have people who who praise and celebrate your work, and you have people who sometimes will be jealous and want to tear it down. And I think you get that in any community where you're you're. Um... But do you find that you get that? There are other writers out there, mm -hmm. um, but do you find that you get that from other writers as well? A little bit here and there. I think you know there are, there are people who are established authorities in any subject matter mm -hmm. and maybe not so much in the Karen Carpenter world. I was kind of the first that came along that had, you know, it was kind of unexplored territory in a lot of ways other than the authorized um, book that, that Richard worked on years and years ago with um, a writer from England, but there wasn't that same kind of type of community established in the Carpenter's world at that time. Um, I and several other people kind of helped to bring those people together on the internet um, 
in 94, 95, when the internet was just kind of coming into homes and, you know, universities and things like that. And so that sort of established a unity there that hadn't existed among those fans. I think the Garland community, I mean, it goes back so, so much farther and, um, People can be territorial, but they can also be incredibly welcoming and wonderful. And I think the good thing to focus on is that there are far more of those people that are welcoming and want the unity to be a part of community, you know? And I, I think we we all realize, first of all, that we have wonderful taste. <laughs> That's right. Amen. And, Amen. But as I mentioned before, we just, we, we get it. You, you can meet a a Judy Garland fan and you almost have a, a set understanding of who they are, at least to some point, because if, if they love Judy, you know, there's gotta be something good about them. <laughs> and um, I, I don't know. I think that for me, unity in relation to Judy has been um, the welcoming into that fan community. And it was something for a while. I thought that I kind of needed to put away. There was um, a time in my life. I thought, okay, I need to, you know, I had children of my own and, okay, I need to be a, a husband and a father and the Wizard of Oz and all these things are childish things. I need to move on. And I really feel like I lost a lot of myself in those years that I put that aside. And I remember shortly after coming out, I re-embraced that part mm -hmm. of me because it was such a huge part of me. You know, when I look back to elementary school, um, in, in my old yearbooks and things, people would write to the real Wizard of Oz. And I would have, you know, teachers who would, that's just uh, how people identified me. I was the Wizard of Oz boy or, you know, they knew I loved Judy and they that knew I had, me. that was me in school. <laughs> they knew I had a, a Wizard of Oz museum in the, in a building out behind my house, which I'm sure, you know, for my, my dad, who was the traditional farm guy, you know, growing, me growing up in Western Oklahoma and, Hey everybody, come see my Wizard of Oz museum on our farm. <laughs> that was that was something that that he probably had to definitely get used to, but was still always supportive. And um, so it was a huge part of who I was and who I am. Mm -hmm. And you know, just for those few years in there, I I kind of lost it, and it was I lost a part of me because it is such a big part of who I you know was as a kid and who I have re-embraced in these past 15, 16 years. Well, God bless you for bringing it back. Uh, I have a question for uh, one of our viewers, uh, Danielle. Thanks for being here, Danielle. And she says, as someone who loves both Judy and Karen, I would love to know what connection or parallels you feel about the two of them. I, I think that they, I mean, we the obvious is they were both troubled souls in a lot of ways. And, um, the thing for me that attracts me to both of them, though, is the vulnerability, the conversational qualities in the way that they sing. I feel like they both draw you in as if they're singing only to you. Absolutely. Wow. And there's it's, it's just a rare thing because, yeah, Judy could stand there and perform a song and, hey, I'm going to blow you away with this. But at the same time, oh, there's a quote that I want to read from your book. Oh, OK, good. No, keep talking. Oh, okay. Um, no, I think that she, that, that Judy is one who could stand back and say, you know, watch out, I'm going to perform for you and everybody stand back. But at the same time, 
there are other times that you want to lean in and listen to what she has to say. And it's like, she's whispering a secret to you. And I think that's the common thread with her and Karen, that vulnerability, that um, tenderness and the conversational qualities of their singing voices that, that connect them in a lot of ways. The, um, do you want to read or do you want me to read it? Oh, you go ahead. I have the book here nearby, but I don't have anything marked or open. Or anything. I, I love this. And it says, um, from this, these are Judy's own words. I have a machine in my throat that gets into many people's ears and affects them. Uh, there's something about my voice that makes them see all the sadness and humor that they've experienced. It makes them know that they aren't too different and they aren't apart. Goes back to the unity. Mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, that's the only reasons I can give for people's liking to hear me sing. There are many reasons, Judy, um, because I'm not that fine a singer. <laughs> uh, sometimes my vibrato is too fast or too slow. Although I've got good, uh, very good pitch, I have good diction, and I read a song uh, much more than I sing it. I try to bring the audience's own drama, tears, and laughter they know about to them. I try to match my lifelong experiences with theirs, and they match their own sadness and happiness to mine. I think that's it. Both men and women connect me with Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, and they have a protective attitude toward me, which is rather sweet. Oh, that's perfection. Thank you. That that wrapped up my rambling in a nice little bow. <laughs> Let's let her say it. Oh my God. I mean, when, I mean, that just jumped out at me and mm. I, I want to ask I, this book in terms of this being her own words and everything is a very different narrative, of course, mm -hmm. uh, than little girl blue, for example. Right. Um, and are there other, I mean, the other books that are in this series, because this is part of a series, are the other books very much like this? Or is this a book that's unique to itself, having not read the other books? I'm sorry. They're, they're very similar. The, the series that you're speaking of is called Musicians in Their Own Words. And it comes from Chicago Review Press, which is the publisher that did my Karen Carpenter book, Little Girl Blue. And I remember just a couple of weeks after Little Girl Blue came out and it was obvious we were getting a lot of attention on, for the book and that it was going to be a success. My editor said in an email to me, so what's your next book? <laughs> and it had never crossed my mind as to what that would be. And because I, you know, it worked so long on that one, there just wasn't anything else on the standby or anything. And it was around that time that I saw this series that they were doing and they had done, um, Coltrane on Coltrane, Hendrix on Hendrix. And it had all been male based. Uh, it had all been male centered, I guess you could say. There hadn't been any female subjects in the series yet. And it was all either jazz or um, rock. I think they've done some country and stuff since then. But Judy didn't really fit in with this, but Judy's kind of a genreless, you know, she, you can't say that she's jazz or, or pop or really anything. She's just Judy Garland. And I, after seeing several of those other titles, which are very much in the same format, I mean, it's, it's the, the reprinting of a, a lot of um, interviews or transcriptions of radio and television interviews. Um, sometimes articles that are heavily 
um, you know, centered around an interview. And um, so I, I did have the format and everything kind of there for me established already in these other books. But um, yeah, I, I pitched Judy and they, they went for it. So I was excited to, first of all, have the first female title in the, in the series, but then also to, to get to go back and, and choose what we were going to, you know, represent. I, I divided the book into four decades mm-hmm. and the first two decades, you know, and as I set it up in the, in the preface and everything, it was a lot of publicity generated um, interviews and sometimes things, you know, as told to kind of stories that would be in the fan magazines. And and there are things in them that could definitely be debated. And, you know, there are Garland scholars who will say, oh, well, you know, there are these inaccuracies in those early, um, in those early press pieces. And I wanted to, you know, set this up from the beginning. It is what it is. And I didn't want to go back in and try and, you know, there are a few places that I would put an editor's note or something to that effect, but I didn't want to go in and like clean everything up and, and try and, you know, bring it to the new century or whatever. I I wanted people to see what people read during that time, you know, what the press was like for Judy in the 1930s and forties. And um, so it does come with that disclaimer, you know, that these are fan magazines um, a, a lot of those in the fifties, it started to get around to where she was talking a little more for herself instead of through that, um, through that studio. Well, when she was let go from MGM, she really felt that she, for the first time had her own voice. Yeah. That was, you know, that's when you start to see, I think the real Judy emerge. We had the manufactured Judy and who they wanted us to think that she was. And, you know, a lot of that is based in truth, but at the same time, it's it's through that filter of the studio publicity wheel. But all these little things that are popping out for me as I'm reading the book, for example, I mean, we all know Judy Garland was born June 10th, but in the early, you know, early on, her parents had her listed as January 10th, uh, you know, which is my dad's birthday. <laughs> and I said, you know, there it's like, dad, okay. You know, there's that connection there. Mm-hmm. Little things like this. But, I mean, did it make it more difficult for you? Uh, I mean, obviously, there are so many books about Judy Garland. Uh, uh, and, of course, so much has been written. Um, and everyone can form their own opinions about some of those things that have been written. Did it make it easier or harder for you to decipher, obviously, you're trying to put this in her own words, from the publicity machinery that was being put up by, by MGM uh, to try to, you know, break it down into the truth? Um, I, I didn't want to mess up the manuscript too much by adding too much in terms of, of editorial notes. And that's why I went more for the blanket statement of, um, and I don't know exactly the wording that I used, but just the, the fact that these were studio generated and usually funneled through studio um, and PR folks and everything. And I, I tried to set up each piece, you know, each piece starts with an editor's note that kind of introduces why this is important or, or what was significant about each interview and, or what this revealed for the first time, things like that. Um, I, I put my energies more into that than into trying to correct every little thing that you know might not be 100% accurate now what we know about Judy. I thought it was more important to leave it 
as it was for posterity's mm -hmm. sake than to try and go in and, you know, rearrange everything. What was the first Judy Garland uh, biography that you ever purchased or that you got? I, I know that you reference in the uh, in, at the very beginning of the book, uh, uh, Christopher Finch and uh, mm -hmm. Rainbow, uh, and that was one of the earliest uh, biographies that came out. Uh, and my aunt Grace, may she rest in peace, uh, gave me that book when mm -hmm. I was a kid. Uh, so, what was one of the what was the first book that you remember getting? Um, the Judy Garland biography by Anne Edwards was the first one that I found. Um, I used to be a and I still am when I get the chance, but a, a flea market antique store, you know, kid, my mom would sometimes drop me off at this place um, that I would just go and scour through things for hours. And my little sister would hold her nose and say, it stinks in here. Everything smells old. <laughs> and I just loved it. I would just, you know, I could sit on the floor for hours and dig through things looking for even one more morsel of anything Judy related. But um, I found that Ann Edwards biography, um, I tried to read it as a kid, but I really didn't know enough about Judy. And it, it you know, I, I read the parts that were fun for me at that time or interesting to me at that time and kind of skipped around in it. Um, I do, I, I love the Christopher Finch um, book. I think there's a lot of great material, especially about younger Judy mm -hmm. and the early days in there. Um, I remember getting the, you know, the mammoth Gerald Frank book that's, you know, like a, like a doorstop. It's so heavy. <laughs> Wouldn't, um, but yeah, there's shelf of those books. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that was really the one that I think first you had all the kids participating in that and, you know, every, a number of the ex-husbands. And um, so that, that book is one that I went back to a lot in my research and um, yeah, there, there are so many, but that was what I liked about this particular series there because you don't want to add another biography to the mix just to do it. You know, I wouldn't have wanted to do just a Judy biography if I didn't have anything necessarily new to say or anything new to reveal. But this format allowed that to happen. And, you know, there were a number of occasions throughout Judy's last decade of her life that she attempted to write her own autobiography. And um, I want to talk about that, yeah. uh, especially because, you know, that really starts your book off as well. Um, in 1960, she uh, was, you know, with Random House, um, uh, Bennett Surf. for those of you mm -hmm. old enough. Uh, I, you know, of course, What's My Line? He was there, but, uh, you know, uh, if you can talk a little bit about that, um, and of course it's in the book, we want people to buy the book still. Um, but if you can talk about, uh, how it came about that she was going to write the book. And of course mm -hmm. we know uh, pretty much why it didn't happen uh, and the aftermath of that. Do you mind if I read a little bit from the preface? Is that no, okay? I would uh, yeah, absolutely. Because that, that whole thing, you know, that happened in, in the beginning of 1960, she was so ill and she had been told by doctors that she might not even sing again. And this was the voice that she found, you know, that she could, tell her story, even if she couldn't sing at that point. So now everyone, uh, it just to set the, uh, the time frame. This is pre Carnegie hall. Uh, she was told she'd never sing again. <laughs> so this is a quote from random house, a book for which publishers have been angling for years has been signed and sealed. 
proclaimed Random House in a press release dated January 4th, 1960. So this would have been the end of 59 that she was in the hospital. We expect that the Judy Garland story will be our act one for 1960. And of course, act one was the autobiography of Moss Hart that was hugely successful for them the year before. <clears throat> what promised to be the book deal of the decade was personally negotiated by Bennett Cerf during a visit to Judy Garland's room at Manhattan's doctor's hospital where she spent seven weeks near the end of 1959. Those great hypnotic brown eyes of her were not there, recalled Judy's ghostwriter, Freddie Finkelhoff, mm -hmm. a longtime friend and Metro, Metro Golden Mayor writer, just little dark spots sunken in the fat and bloat of her face. Those famous legs, the ankles of a gazelle, were fat and heavy, and she had trouble getting into her shoes. The doctors announced the verdict. Sid Luff told me, it's hepatitis, and it's very bad. That's what he told Judy. But he was lying to her, and he lied to me. She had cirrhosis of the liver and very bad. With physicians prescribing retirement and saying she'd forever be a semi-invalid, the 37-year-old's career seemed at its end. And, you know, that's, like you mentioned, just right before Carnegie Hall. So she's the queen of comebacks. We know that. But I think for a few months during this time, she she kind of believed that she might be done. And um, I think she believed what the doctor said. And, you know, there's that interview where, or I, I think it was someone was talking about how when Judy was told you may be a semi-invalid, whatever semi-invalid means, but yeah. that she threw up her hands and said, you know, like, thank God or yippee or something to that effect because she just wanted a rest. But I think it gave her a chance to start reflecting on on her life, which I means she was only, you know, she <laughs> still a young a, a young woman really at the time, but a time to reflect on her life and long career by that point, you know, having started at MGM in 1935. She had been in show business much longer than that. So um, I think it was a chance for her to start reflecting. And because she recovered so quickly and got back out there and started singing and concertizing again and making movies once again, um, you know, she put it back on the shelf for a while. But she'd get it out every once in a while and, you know, start up again, maybe with a different ghostwriter here and there or she ran into Bennett Surf years later and and he wanted to maybe have her do it again or pick up where she left off. But um, I mean, I think we all know that those those years between 1960 and 69, she was kind of all over the place. There was a, a, a lot going on for her and she didn't really have much of a home base during a lot of those years. I love the way that you've divided the book, you know, you know, between those MGM years and the concert years. And, you know, when we look at her career as basically uh, two different major chapters in her life. Uh, but, I, you know, it is Father's Day and I want to talk a little bit about her own relationship with her father. Um, you know, it's legendary that she was, you know, on the uh, was the Chateau Radio. Oh, Chateau Chateau. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, with Wallace Beery. Um, and uh, not knowing the severity of how ill her father was um, and uh, singing Zing the Strings of My Heart with this incredible powerhouse as her father is literally listening uh, as he's dying. His deathbed, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and to be, you know, to go home and find out that, you know, her father is gone 
just as her career is just on the rise. Um, uh, and uh, if you can talk a little bit about your own impact, you know, you're not a therapist, but uh, <laughs> you're the closest thing to that at being a writer. Um, and your own thoughts on how you feel that this really shaped who she became. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Her her father never really had the opportunity to see who Judy Garland was. He knew little Francis and, I, you know, she had the name Judy Garland by that point, but it all happened at the same time where she was starting to blossom into this, um, you know, the star that she became and he was already gone for that. And he, I think he was probably one of the only stable things in her life and maybe not even all that stable himself. Cause we know that he, you know, was probably going through a lot of his own um, on his own at that time, not really able to be who he, he was as many people, you know, know, and has now been documented that, that he was a gay man and a closeted gay man. And um, I think that he and Judy were very similar in their sensitivities and in their, their kindness and in their warmth. And, you know, Judy didn't get along with her mother all that well. I mean, that's to say it lightly. Um, but I think Judy felt a little bit abandoned after, like she didn't have anybody in her corner after he was gone. Because, well, you know, and, and also, I mean, she married uh, Gilmore. I mean, with literally, it seemed like oh two minutes of her father passing away. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that would traumatize any child. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think it was tough for her to not only, yeah, like you said, not only have her father gone, but then to have him replaced so quickly in the household. And um, I mean, that's portrayed so deeply, I think, in uh, especially in the um, the made-for-TV movie, Me and My Shadows. Mm -hmm. we, we really get to see Tammy Blanchard. Wow. I mean, wow. The, the both of the stars of that, that movie, Tammy yeah. and Judy Davis, what, what fantastic jobs they did with those roles. And um, I mean, that's what, that's what I picture in my mind when I see this, I, you know, the, the way that Judy reacted to seeing her mom move on so quickly and how obvious it was that she had already been with someone else um, at the time that her father died. Obviously, when you're working on a book such as this, you get to know uh, your subject uh, on a level uh, that the rest of us don't. I mean, I'm sure there's parts that don't even make it to the book. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure it intensifies your thoughts on who this person is. And uh, what was the biggest thing that surprised you about Judy beyond what you already knew about her? before you began working on this project? Well, I think the fact that she was so positive during <laughs> really awful situations, you know, especially near the end, how she could find humor. And that's no, that's not a big reveal for anybody. I think everybody knows that, you know, she was witty and, and, you know, fun and could find some self-deprecating story to tell about herself and make people laugh. But the fact that she overcame so many things and could look at the sunny side of things, 
even when things were still going south. Um, there's an interview, of course, Lorna talks about this in a number of interviews, but where she says that her mother wasn't, wasn't a tragedy, you know, <laughs> things that tragic things happened to her, but, and I think we, we have to remember her not as the tragedy, but as the joy and as, um, the bright light that she brought to this world. And she, she just found a way to overcome so many things for, for so long. And I think that that's, I, I guess it was a surprise in some ways, but it was, it was also, I mean, what people talk about, she was that continuous comeback queen. Now, now, Lucille Ball, you know, said that Lucy, uh, that she felt that Judy Garland was one of the funniest people on mm -hmm. the planet. Uh, I want to ask you, both in print and uh, visual and on film, what was your favorite, uh, let's start with print, interview that you came across? Um, you know, for, for several reasons, I think there's, uh, I need to reference the contents here, but there was a um, interview that she gave. Yeah. Um, January 16th, 1969, the private agony and joy of Judy Garland, Clive Hershorn. And he visited her in her, um, in her hotel room at the time. And, you know, talked about the um, suitcases being opened up and clothes strewn about. And um, it, I think he did such a wonderful job of painting a picture and establishing the scene before getting into the interview that it made the interview that much more special. Mm. And um, I think, you know, she was listening to an old recording of, of herself and um, usually the, I think I would go to most of those from the 1960s from that final section because she was, you know, most, um, I think she was most herself at that time. Oh, well, and now you you put that one up there. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I don't know how I can skip over that one. No, that yeah. was, you know, illustrated. But these are available, you know, I found these. Uh, these are on my shelf over here. Mm -hmm. Yes. The one from Show Business Illustrated is, well, I love that cover of yes. the magazine, you know, first of all. But that one's as close to, you know, like the Playboy interview that became the format in the in the 1970s a little yes. bit more. And I think of, you know, Dolly Parton's Playboy interview is like the epic Dolly Parton interview from those early years. And that show business illustrated interview, and it was it was in two or, I can't remember if it was two or three different issues that it continued through, at least two, is kind of that epic interview and from around the time of Carnegie Hall. So yeah, that thank you for bringing that one up. That one's definitely a good one. So we're going to give away your book, but before we do so, I've got some uh, wind down questions that I'm going to ask okay. you. And the first question is, what is the most interesting thing that you discovered while you were writing your book? Um, I, I think the opening story, where the, which I started to read from just a little bit ago, um, that opening story of how bad it was for her at that time. And to hear Freddie Finkelhoff describe what she looked like in opposition to what we know her as and what she, you know, came back to be 
in just a few years after that. Um, I think that was one of the most shocking and revealing things. And then to find out, um, you know, that they, that they signed the deal for this, for this book that she was wanting to write right there in the, in the hospital room. Mm. And um, it just kind of helped to unfold the opening of the book for me whenever I started to learn those things and to piece little stories together here and there that were kind of interesting tidbits, but when they all, all those pieces start to come together, it creates a much, you know, more vivid and um, detailed picture. So that's probably my favorite. That's great. Um, what is the one thing that you are most uh, interested in right now in terms of everything Judy? Uh, wow. Um you know, I just recently showed Wizard of Oz to my students, and I was—I usually show a musical in um, the end of April or May. You know, it's that time of year the school year's winding down. And you know, last year we we saw um, Sound of Music for my older kids, fourth and fifth graders, and then I did the um, Whitney Houston Cinderella <laughs> for um, for my younger grades. And so I love to introduce movie musicals. And this year I was like which grades should I show Wizard of Oz to? I knew I wanted to do it for a number of reasons. And I couldn't think of any reason not to show it to all of them. And it was it was kind of shocking to me to find out that out of every class, say I have 22, 24 kids in a class, um, not even half of them had seen the movie. Wow. And so it was... It was exciting for me to be the first to introduce them to that and to see some little faces light up. And, you know, there were some kids that, that would be like, Oh yeah, what kind of special effects are these? Because they're not thinking, okay, 1939, I, you know, I prefaced it. This movie's more than 80 years old and so on and so forth. And some of them look at that and they're in such a CGI world that they look through those things and miss the magic. And then there are those kids that lit up and believed every moment of everything. And it, it was just exciting to watch their faces um, light up and realize that maybe there's a new fan in the making. Um, so as far as Judy, I think just keeping her memory alive and passing that on to future generations is, is such a huge deal. If you ever get a chance to go and see this film in a movie theater with people who were seeing it for the first time. I, I remember years ago, I went to see it. And as Glenda made her entrance, mm -hmm. this little girl in the theater screamed, oh my God, it's a fairy princess. <laughs> <laughs> and the entire audience burst into applause. It was just so great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you feel that uh, when and where you were born gives any insight as to the way that you feel and that you embrace Judy Garland now? Oh, wow. Um, that's a tough one. You know, I, I always say that people say, how do you pick your subjects for your books? And I, at least in the case of, well, actually the case of all three of my, my Holy Trinity, it's, it's <laughs> and in no particular order, but um, Dolly, Judy, and Karen. And I think Dolly was probably the first that I was introduced to maybe even two years old that I was standing at the screen to the, 
to my grandma's big zenith and her telling me, you're going to put your eyes out, which is kind of funny thinking about it was Dolly. <laughs> um, but, but growing up with, with that um, attraction to those three females, um, I knew that they were so special and so unique and so talented and nobody else I knew was attracted to them in the same way. And they were so magical to me. And I think that in a lot of ways they found me, <laughs> you know, when people say, how do you find your subject? I like, I wasn't looking for something to be, you know, obsessed with in this way um, on any of those three, but it's like something about them, whether it be, again, that vulnerability in the singing um, or something about their story that just reeled me in. It's that they found me in some way. I didn't go looking for a subject for a book. You know, I mentioned earlier this idea of somebody saying that I was a serial author in no way whatsoever. You know, I was asked, what's your next book? And I, I went back to the things that I love the most. And I think that's, you know, a really sincere reason to do something like this and to pay tribute to Judy. I can, uh, well, you point that person out to me next time. And I, <laughs> I will give them a list of many serial authors and uh, you are in fine company, mister. So <laughs> Thank you. What you're doing. No. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Scott Headley is going to be on the show tomorrow night. Um, he was at the helm of Get Happy, 100 Years of Judy Garland. What costume excited you the most out of everything that you saw in his exhibit and why? Oh gosh, there were so many beautiful pieces. Um, I think to see the Easter parade dress again, yeah, I say again because um, when this book came out, when, when my Judy book came out in 2015, um, or was it 2014? I think end of 2014, maybe I did a big book launch event at a at an old art deco theater in Dallas. And it just happened to coincide with the night that I proposed to my husband. Ah. <laughs> and we had brought in um, Michael Seward, who is a, a longtime Judy fan and who owned many of her dresses. And just in the last few years, sold a lot of them off. And actually Scott purchased several yes. of those from, um, from Michael, but we brought in Michael. And so I was, I, I told my husband he knew what he was getting into because he said, yes, surrounded by these dozens of Judy Garland gowns. <laughs> and um, that may be the gayest proposal ever. Um, but anyhow, I, I seeing that. We'll compare yes, notes later. <laughs> seeing that gown again, the, the um, Easter parade dress, and he's done such, Scott's done such a great job to restore it it was in pretty bad shape before and was, it looked like it was almost tea stained. It had had so much damage over the years. And I know Scott worked for at least three years or something like that now on this one particular gown to bring it back to its former glory. And it was really beautiful to see it's new condition. Which dress is it in the film? It's the, it's the white dress from the finale oh, with okay. the, pink, the pink, long pink yeah. gloves um, when they were actually in the Easter parade. Wow. Great. Um, what, what it, what movie or song of Judy's can you watch or listen to over and over and over and never get tired of? Besides Over the Rainbow. <laughs> um, Which we were listening to before we went live. 
You know, I think my favorite song that's on repeat more than any others is By Myself, which, of course, um, comes from... Which, my, which version? Because there were a couple of versions. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think the, the one from um, the album by the same title, and I love that cover. She's like kind of superimposed on this beach. Yes. <laughs> um, I think that original album version may be my, my favorite. Um, but... But yeah, that's probably my favorite song that I could listen to over and over. Wow, that's great. Uh, what is the most important action that you feel that you've taken in the last week related to Judy Garland other than this show and other than going to the event um, in California? Oh, goodness. Well, <laughs> I feel like that's all That's all I've done. Um you know, in, in California, w while I was there, separate from the the event, of course, just getting to visit Judy's final resting place uh, is, is so special. So it's not really anything I've done or in, in that way, but just the visit to her and seeing other people standing, you know, and having, well, there's that, that word unity again, having that unity with people. We weren't even talking to one another, but we all looked at each other like, we get it. We know why we're here. You too, huh? <laughs> and so that that was really special. Being there on her birthday and seeing the the book of messages from people all over the world that had stopped in to pay tribute to her and pay their respects to her on on her birthday. Well, we miss her here in New York, but uh, you know, so she was here for a while. Um, you know, you probably have answered this uh, next question already earlier in the show, uh, but I'm going to go a step further with it. Um, okay. uh, it had, when this book came out, um, and I'm all about celebrating, so I want to focus on that. But did you ever, did you experience any prejudice with this book? And if so, how did you move beyond that? And I ask this question because all of us deal with negativity. Mm -hmm. uh, anytime you are an artist, you put work out there, they're naysayers. Uh, mm -hmm. We all deal with it. And I only want to ask this question from a positive point of view. How do you move beyond it? I I remember asking a fellow author, a guy by the name of Tom Santopietro. Not sure if oh. you Yes, one of my best friends. One of my oh, good friends. I yes. should know that you would know him. Um, you know, Tom did a, a talk back kind of Q&A thing with me, not only when this book came out at a Barnes & Noble in New York, um, but back when the Karen book came out um, in 2010 at the, the big Barnes & Noble, you know, by Lincoln Center that yes, unfortunately no one is. Yes. Um, and I remember asking him, you know, in the in the Karen world, I kind of was the Karen expert there for a while. <laughs> like no, there wasn't much competition. But in the Judy world, there is quite a bit of, you know, people who are maybe a little bit territorial about where they stand in that in that world. And I remember saying to him, "How do you go into something like that if you're not the expert on it?" And I remember him saying that you do the work and you become the expert. And, you know, it, it really started with me just loving Judy and, you know, knowing a lot about her, but not ever feeling that I was 
an expert. And I still don't feel that way. There's a lot that I would have to learn to compete with any of these other authors. And, um, but I knew that I could go into this book and be the expert on Judy in her own words. You know, I could, I had a, Mm -hmm. I had this trajectory into her story and that's what I focused on is not becoming the Judy Garland expert or even a Judy Garland expert, but being the one that did the research into what she said and when, and these interviews. And I just kind of followed his advice. He's like, it's kind of like um, in Field of Dreams, you build it and they will come. It's like you do the work and you, <laughs> you know, you're the expert, you do the book. And so that was, that was advice that uh, was much appreciated and I, I think has given me confidence in going into these other worlds that may be kind of dominated by big figures who are are really wonderful in their knowledge of Judy or in the Dolly Parton world. Same thing there. Um, there are people who praise that book and there are others who, who they're like, who's this guy? Where'd he come from? <laughs> and so I've just kind of had to hold my head high and know that I, I did the work and I did my very best. Well, you did. You certainly did. And Tom is a great guy, so I love that. Um, an episode of the Judy Garland show or a movie that you could watch over and over and over again of Judy's. Hmm. You know, for some reason, I gravitate to summer stock. <laughs> There's something about it. it. It was probably the third or fourth Judy movie I saw as a kid. And... Um, that one still is, it, it holds a wonderful place in my heart. And of course, Meet Me in St. Louis, which has been fun to see in the theater in recent years, you know, to see that on the big screen. Um, yeah. Wow. And this is my last question. Um, what do you think is the best advice that you learned from Judy in her own words? Oh, wow. Now, to say it in her own words, I would probably have to dig back into the book. But, um, man, I think the fact that she just kept picking up and going in another day. I I don't know. I'm not thinking of an actual quote from Judy. But the fact that she just kept on and kept on and came back from so many hardships and so many setbacks and every time came back better than before. Absolutely. And I think it's just her tenacious spirit um, and not so much a particular quote from her. I'm sure if I, if I would dig, I could find something because she was quite eloquent and wonderful. Um, You know, there, there is a quote where she talks about, from 1945, I, I'm not sure if I can find it just flipping through here, but from 1945, where she was talking about, um, well, kind of the subject of unity, as as we've been doing here today. I'm trying to see if it jumps out at me. In the you want to look for that while we give away a book? Absolutely, that'll that'll yeah, be that'll, that'll be great. So let's give away a book, and we have a lot of people who signed up tonight, which excites me. So uh, thank you all for being here. And I will, uh, we're going to see who we're going to give this. Erin! And she just had a birthday. So what a great birthday gift. Uh, And uh, Erin, I will put you and uh, Randy in touch. Did you find it, Randy? I did. Congratulations, Erin. Just in time. 
uh, for your uh, birthday. So, uh, Aaron, I'll put you both in touch with each other. Happy birthday, Aaron. I love you. So uh, here it is. So uh, the quote. Yeah, I think this is the perfect quote on the subject of unity and um, diversity as well. Judy Garland in 1946 said this. When you get to know a lot of people, you make a great discovery. You find that no one group has a monopoly on looks, brains, goodness, or anything else. It takes all the people, Black and white, Catholic, Jewish and Protestant, recent immigrants and Mayflower descendants to make up America. It just wouldn't be our kind of America without any one of them. And for her to be so forward thinking about diversity and unity in 1945, I think is really special. I can't believe you posted that because I just posted that quote earlier today. So, uh, <laughs> well, I think we, we, we definitely know the, the ones that we love. I, I'm glad you brought up the one earlier about having a, a, a box in her throat or whatever she said to that effect that, you know, touches people. I just love it. Don't go anywhere for a moment. I want to say, first of all, thank you. I am such a fan of your work. And anytime you uh, are uh, doing another serial book or something, <laughs> uh, I want you to come back and uh, be here thank because you. you are a brilliant writer. And uh, thank you. This book, everybody, uh, Judy Garland on Judy Garland. Don't go anywhere for a moment, Randy. Um Thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, happy Father's Day. Uh, thank you all uh, for being here tonight. You could have been anywhere else and you chose to spend it with Randy and me, uh, and it means a lot to me. So I can't thank you enough for that. Um, if this was your first time here, I hope it will not be your last. Uh, please consider subscribing uh, to Richard Skipper Celebrates. My goal is to celebrate artists and their body of worth such as Judy Garland and Randy. Uh, so please uh, consider subscribing. Uh, and after tonight's show, even if you've left a comment here, please go to YouTube and leave a comment there. What that will do is that will uh, raise the level of where this will show up in search engines. It really helps. So please leave a comment there, share this through YouTube and let other people know about this as well. I also want to let you all know this, if you don't know about this already, I have a newsletter. It's called The Skipper's Guide, like the TV guide, and it comes out at midnight tonight. And every Sunday night, uh, you can go to richardskipper.com and sign up for The Skipper's Guide. Uh, I promise you, you will not be inundated with emails uh, and you will not be spammed. It comes out every Sunday night at midnight. Uh, and you will get a list of everybody that's coming up for the week. And it comes out just once a week. So please uh, subscribe to that. And if you want to sponsor uh, the newsletter, if you have a show coming up or a book or something uh, that you want to uh, promote or something, uh, get in touch with me and I can tell you about that as well. I also end every show. And this is very special because a few weeks ago, I had Joanna Gleason on the show. And she said there was this synchronistic thing that the both of us have going on here. I always end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. And I always end my shows by telling everyone to go out and like today, pick up the phone and uh, go to your Facebook friends list and reach out to the fourth person that uh, pops up and reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message but a phone call and let that person know what they mean to you. So 
I'm going to pick up with Joanna Gleason. She said Sunday nights uh, are famously known for a lot of people as the loneliest night of the week because a lot of people are sad uh, because of family memories that they remember or it's the end of the week. They're uh, anxious about the week ahead. So tonight is a good night to pick up the phone and call that fourth person. And what you can do is you can call that fourth person and say, hey, did you just see that great interview with Richard Skipper and Randy Schmidt? And if you didn't see it, you can go to YouTube and check it out. Uh, and what you can also do is order two copies of this book on amazon.com or your favorite bookseller. You can keep one for yourself and you can send one to the fourth person on your list. Uh, but by any means, reach out. Because as I said at the beginning of the show, unity, unity, unity. We're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. But I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. So I'm going to leave the screen, Randy, and you're going to have the final word tonight. Anything about anything that we talked about tonight that you want to build upon? Anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had? or just any final message you want to leave everybody with tonight. Uh, don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the final credits will roll. And again, thank you for all that you do. I'm a big fan. Thank you, and good night, everybody. It's all yours. Thank you. You know, I think back to the kid that I was in Western Oklahoma in um, my childhood, and how alone I felt in those interests and passions. And now I, I hope that there aren't kids who feel that same sense of loneliness because of something that they, they love or who they are or what they cherish. And um, so look out for those creative kids, look out for those weird kids, those different kids and find a way to encourage them to chase those passions and to go after the things that other people might be saying, that's silly. Why, why are you into that? What's, what's the purpose or meaning of that? Or that's childish. You've got to grow up and move on and think about this or that. Um, find those weird kids and help usher them along into being who they're, they're going to be because a lot of times those things that make us weird or unusual or different are the things that we're going to celebrate as adults. Bye.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.